Stepping into the room, she found it small and plain next to the rest of the mansion. There were no works of art, and the only furnishing was a display case set against the back wall a few meters away. By the light of her glow lamp, she could see an array of jewelry carefully arranged in the display case. Rings, necklaces, amulets, and even crowns, all imbued with the power of the dark side. Zana had seen collections like this before. Ten years ago, Hetton, a force-sensitive Serenian noble obsessed with the dark side, had shown her a similar trove of Sith artifacts, an offering he had hoped would convince Zana to take him on as her apprentice despite his advanced age. Unfortunately for Hetton, his baubles and trinkets hadn't been able to save him or his trained guards when they confronted Zana's own master. Bane had shown Hetton the true power of the dark side, a lesson that had cost the old man his life. Bane also collected the treasures of the ancient Sith, but he preferred the wisdom contained in the ancient texts. Xana knew he looked on the rings, amulets, and other paraphernalia with disdain. The spark of the dark side that burned within them was like a single drop of rain falling into the ocean of power he already commanded. He saw no need to augment his abilities with gaudy jewelry fashioned centuries ago by ancient Sith sorcerers. Her master believed true strength must come from within, and he had ingrained this belief in his apprentice. Apparently that was another lesson she would have to teach Set Hearth, assuming he proved himself worthy of being her apprentice. Xana froze as she felt a sudden presence within the mansion. Reaching out with the force, she confirmed her suspicions. Set had returned from his party, and he was alone. Extinguishing her glow rod, she moved in perfect darkness back toward the main entrance, letting the Force guide her path. Slipping silently to the railing overlooking the large sitting room at the foot of the stairs, she spotted her quarry almost directly below her. By the light of the lamp on a nearby end table, she could see him lounging on an exquisite leather couch, a bottle of fine Solaston wine in one hand and a half-filled glass in the other. He was still dressed in the clothes he had worn to the party. A turquoise blue shirt of fine Dramassian silk, tailored black slacks, and knee-high boots polished to perfection. The collar of his shirt was unbuttoned, and its long, loose-fitting sleeves hung from his wrists, billowing softly as he gently swirled the wine to release its full body between each sip. She made no attempt to mask her own presence. She was curious to see if Set would sense her through the Force the same way she had sensed him on his arrival. Much to her dismay, he seemed completely oblivious, lost in the comforts of his home and the enjoyment of his drink. Xana leapt over the railing and fell five meters to the floor below, landing behind him silent, save for the soft rustle of her black cape. Set shifted at the noise, twisting in his seat to fix his bleary gaze on the intruder. Greetings, he said with a smile, seemingly unsurprised by her arrival. I don't believe we've had the pleasure. My name is Set Hearth. He raised his drink and tilted his head as if toasting her arrival. I know who you are, Xana replied coldly. Set carefully placed the wine bottle in his glass on the nearby end table, then turned back to Xana and patted the cushion beside him. Why don't you make yourself comfortable? Plenty of room for both of us. I prefer to stand. Xana was both confused and dismayed by his reaction. Instead of being guarded, wary, or even outraged at discovering an intruder in his home, Set seemed to be hitting on her, 
His tone was playful and suggestive. Couldn't he sense that his life hung in the balance? Couldn't he sense the danger he was in? Set responded to her refusal with an easy shrug. Followed me home from the party, did you? He guessed. Normally, I wouldn't forget such a pretty face. Xana cursed herself as a fool. She had come here looking for an apprentice and found nothing but a womanizing fool, too interested in making clumsy advances to recognize her power. Her failure was embarrassing. She knew with certainty Darth Bane would have seen Set for what he was right away. You still haven't told me your name, Set reminded her, waggling his finger in front of his face. You're a very naughty girl. The attack came the instant Xana opened her mouth to reply. It came without any warning, Set moving with the preternatural speed of the Force. The Dark Jedi's lightsaber materialized in his hand, igniting and spiraling across the room toward her faster than thought itself. Xana barely managed to duck out of the way, the lightsaber's blade slicing off a section of her cape as she threw herself to the floor. By the time the weapon completed its boomerang path and returned to Set's hand, he was on his feet, as was Xana. She realized Set's initial greeting had all been an act. He had been waiting with his lightsaber up his sleeve the whole time, just looking for Xana to lower her guard. Maybe there was hope for him yet. You move fast, Set noted, a hint of admiration in his voice. His words no longer carried the light, easy tone of a guest at a party. He had dropped all pretense now. His blue eyes were sharp and focused, boring through his opponent, searching for any weakness he could exploit. Xana braced herself for his next assault. In her mind, the next few seconds played out in a thousand different scenarios, each unique in its specific details, each a vision of a possible future glimpsed through the power of the Force. The sheer number of possibilities could be overwhelming, but Bane had trained her well. Instinctively, she collapsed the matrix of probabilities into the most likely outcomes, effectively allowing her to anticipate and react to her opponent's next move even before it happened. Set fired out a sharp burst of dark side power in a shimmering wave designed to knock her from her feet. Xana easily countered by throwing up a protective energy barrier, the simplest and most effective way for one force user to defend against the attacks of another. It was a technique taught to every Jedi Padawan, and it had been one of the earliest lessons Bane had required her to master. You're a Jedi, Set exclaimed. A Sith, Xana replied. I thought the Sith were extinct, he replied, casually twirling his lightsaber in one hand, never taking his eyes off Xana. Not yet. She stood still, her own lightsaber still tucked inside her belt. But she was wary now. Set had almost fooled her once, and she wasn't about to let it happen again. Let me see if I can fix that. As he leapt over the couch toward her, Xana ignited her own weapon. The twin blade sprung to life, and she fell into the familiar dance. Set came in low to start, slashing at her legs. When she parried his incoming blade, he spun away quickly, moving out of range before she could retaliate. With the force, he picked up a bronze bust on the side of the room and hurled it toward her left flank. At the same time, he dived forward into a somersault that brought him close enough to strike at her right side as he tumbled past her. Xana easily repelled both threats, her spinning blade slicing the bust in half, even as she pivoted just enough so that Set's weapon missed her hip by less than a centimeter. 
For good measure, she kicked him hard in the back as he rolled past, a blow meant not to disable him, but to goad him on to further aggression. When two skilled combatants engaged each other with the lightsaber, the blades moved so quickly it was impossible to think and react to each move. Bane had taught her to rely on instinct, guided by the Force and honed by thousands of hours training in the martial forms. This training allowed her to realize within the first few passes that Set was using a modified variation of a Taru, a style defined by quick aggressive strikes. In only the first few moments of battle, she had already evaluated her opponent, noting his speed, agility, and technique. Set was good, very good. But Xana also knew without any doubt that she was much, much better. Set, however, had yet to come to the same realization. Her kick had had the desired effect. When he came at her the next time, his face was twisted with snarling rage. His fury allowed him to call upon the dark side, making him even more dangerous as he unleashed his next series of attacks. Leaping high in the air, crouching low to the ground, lunging forward, springing back, spinning, twisting and twirling, he came at her from every conceivable angle in a relentless barrage meant to overwhelm her defenses, only to have Xana turn his efforts back with a cool, almost casual efficiency. Lightsaber battles were brutal in their intensity. Few duels lasted more than a minute. Even for a trained Jedi, the effort of all-out combat was exhausting, particularly when using the acrobatic maneuvers of Ataru. It didn't take long for Xana to sense that her opponent was wearing down. She, on the other hand, was barely winded. At Bane's urging, she had become an expert in the defensive sequences of the Ceresso form. It was simple for her to parry, redirect, or evade her opponent's blows by using Set's own momentum against him, easily keeping the Dark Jedi at bay. In their short encounter, she was presented with at least a dozen opportunities to land a lethal blow to the Silver-Haired Man. But she hadn't come here to kill him, not yet at least. She had come here to test him, to see if he was worthy of being her apprentice. He didn't have to beat her to succeed in Xana's eyes. He only had to show potential. Despite his inability to penetrate her defenses, she had seen enough to satisfy her. He may have been reckless and wild with the lightsaber, but he was also imaginative and even at times a little unpredictable. He had shown enough cunning when they first met to make Xana underestimate him. And most importantly, she could feel the power of the dark side raging within him as he grew more and more determined to take her out. Futile those efforts might be. She was toying with him now, dragging the battle out. It wasn't enough for her to want Set as an apprentice. He also had to want her to be his master. She had to prove her superiority so completely that he would be willing to serve. It wasn't enough just to beat the Dark Jedi. She had to break him. When he was a step slow in retreating after one of his thrusts, she kicked his feet out from under him and sent him sprawling to the floor, only to back away and let him get to his feet again. When he moved back in, she twisted her lightsaber in a sharp, unorthodox move, hooking one of her blades onto his and wrenching the weapon from his hand. Set sprang back immediately and used the force to yank the hilt back to his palm, then stubbornly renewed his attacks. But as the seconds slipped by, the fire of the dark side was less and less able to fight off the fatigue setting into his joints and limbs. It was inevitable that his weary body would betray him. And soon enough, 
he came in with his blade held out too far to the side, instead of tight in front of him. Xana stepped forward and snapped her foot straight up, catching Set under the chin. He staggered back, howling in pain, while a string of unintelligible profanity spewed from his mouth, along with a spatter of blood. Do you yield? Xana asked. His only response was to spit a gob of blood onto the expensive carpet at his feet and rush forward once more. Xana felt a small twinge of disappointment. She had hoped he would be smart enough not to continue a battle he could not win. Another lesson I will have to teach you. As he drew near, she responded not with physical violence, but rather with a powerful spell of Sith sorcery that attacked Set's mind. He tried to throw up a protective force barrier in response, but Xana's power shredded his defenses, leaving him completely vulnerable. Sith sorcery was as much a part of the dark side as the deadly violet bolts of energy her master unleashed from his hands. And when Bane had first recognized her talent for the subtle but devastating magics, he had encouraged her studies into the arcane. From ancient texts, she had learned to twist and torment the thoughts of her enemies. She could make them see nightmares as reality. She could cause their deepest fears to manifest as demons of the psyche. She could, and had, rip the minds of her enemies apart with a simple thought and a gesture. With Set, however, she did not intend to destroy him completely. Instead, she enveloped him in a cloud of utter despair and hopelessness. She reached into the innermost recesses of his mind and wrapped it in the nothingness of the void. Set's eyes went blank, his jaw hung slack, and his lightsaber slipped from nerveless fingers. He slowly slumped to the ground, his eyes closing and his body trembling slightly as he curled up into a fetal position. This was to be his final test. A weak mind would collapse upon itself to wither and die, leaving the victim forever comatose. If Set was strong, however, his will would fight back against the horror. Little by little it would tear away at the emptiness, refusing to die, clawing its way back to the surface until consciousness finally returned. If Set was truly worthy of being her apprentice, he would recover from his current condition in a day or two. If not, she would simply have to begin her search anew. Chapter 11 The Huntress brought her shuttle in low over the desert wastelands that covered the majority of Ambria's surface. Though she had received no formal training, she was highly attuned to the Force, allowing her to feel it rising up from the sun-baked dirt as her ship skimmed across the surface. Thousands of years ago, Ambria had been a world of verdant forests, brimming with life and the power of the Force. But the lush vegetation had been devastated when a Sith sorceress tried and failed to bend the entire planet to her will through a powerful ritual. Unable to control the violent energies of the dark side, she was destroyed by her own spell, as was the landscape of the entire planet. For centuries, the corruption of the failed ritual influenced all life on Ambria, transforming the once beautiful world into a nightmare of stunted, poisonous vegetation and twisted, mutated beasts. Eventually, the dark side energies released by the Sith Sorceress were trapped in a great lake near the planet's equator by a Jedi Master named Thon. But the damage was too widespread for the world to ever be completely healed. 
The Iktochi knew all this not because she had studied the planet's history, however. Her connection to the Force allowed her to see things. It gave her glimpses of the past, present, and even possible futures. The ability was common to all Iktochi in varying degrees, but the Huntress's talent went far beyond that of the rest of her species. Most Iktochi would get nothing more than a subtle sense of danger when an impending threat was coming or a general feeling of whether a new acquaintance might be a friend or foe. On occasion, they would be granted precognitive dreams, but even these were little more than random images that meant little without context. With her, however, it was different. Over the years, she had developed her skills so that she could control and direct the visions that flashed through her mind. When she concentrated on a specific person or place, she would get a rush of visual and emotional stimuli that she could often assemble into something useful and coherent. She had meditated for several hours in preparation for her journey to Ambria, calling on the Force while thinking about her destination. In return, she had witnessed scenes plucked from the planet's history. The Sith Sorceress as she was consumed by her failed spell, the Jedi Master struggled to trap the dark side in Lake Nath. But not all her visions were as clear particularly those dealing with the shifting probabilities of the future. Her arrival and meeting with the princess from Doan had only been revealed in vague impressions. She was confident she wasn't walking into a trap. More importantly, she had the sense that somehow this meeting was going to have a profound influence on the rest of her life. For better or for worse, she couldn't say, but she was certain the journey to Ambria would set her on a new path and the Huntress was never one to shy away from her destiny. The location for the meeting was a small abandoned camp located deep in the heart of Ambria's impassable desert. As it drew nearer, the shuttle sensors indicated that another ship was already waiting on the ground. Readings indicated a single life form on board. As promised, the Princess had come alone. The Huntress landed, shut down the engines, and made her way from the climate-controlled comfort of her shuttle out into the dry, suffocating heat of Ambria's midday sun. The princess was standing at the edge of the camp, facing away from her and lost in thought. The camp itself wasn't much to look at. It was nothing but a small, dilapidated hut and an old cooking pot suspended over a ring of stones and charcoal. But despite the modest surroundings, the Huntress could feel this was a place of power, a nexus for both the light and dark sides of the Force. Despite the heat, the Iktochi shivered. Great and terrible things had happened here, events that would one day shape the course of galactic history. The Princess, Sarah, the assassin recalled, turned to face her. I'm glad you came, was all she said. The Huntress sensed something dark and powerful in the other woman, a strength of will and a hatred nurtured over many years. Your bodyguard said you wished to hire me? The princess nodded. They say you can track anyone. No matter where they hide, you can find them. They say you can see across time and space. The statement wasn't precisely accurate, but the Huntress saw no need to explain the subtle intricacies of her talent to this woman. I have never failed a mission. Sarah smiled. There was a man here many years ago. I don't know his name. I don't know where he is now. 
but I want you to find him. Can you do this? She didn't answer right away. Instead, she closed her eyes and reached out with her mind. She felt the force gathering. It swirled around her like a rising storm, carrying the dust of memory imprinted on the campsite. The captured memories encircled her. Images flooded her mind. She saw a child dressed in a frayed and tattered tunic. She saw the child blossom into a young woman. She saw the woman leave Ambria, only to return many years later as a princess. You grew up here, she whispered, as she continued to probe even deeper. Sometimes the history of a place was faint, washed away by the passage of mundane events and insignificant people. Here, the memories were strong, preserved by isolation and trapped in the currents of the force that permeated the camp. I see a man, tall and thin, dark hair, brown skin. My father, Sarah explained. His name was Kalib. He was a healer, wise, strong, a man who commanded respect. She didn't say this to please the princess. The huntress never cared what her clients thought of her as long as they paid. There is another man, Sarah told her. He came to my father for help during the New Sith Wars. Tall and muscular, bald. He was evil. Evil. Reaching out with the Force required intense focus and deep mental concentration. Even so, the Iktochi couldn't help but notice the other woman's hesitation. The Huntress had no use for words like evil or good or even justice. She killed those she was hired to kill. She gave no thought of whether they deserved their fate. Still... She found the princess's choice of labels odd. She was an assassin. She killed for profit. Was this any more evil than the man Sarah spoke of? And what about the princess herself? She wanted to hire someone to take the life of another. Did that make her evil? She did not speak her thoughts aloud, however. They had no relevance to what she was doing. Instead, she pushed deeper into the well of memories, submersing herself in them in search of the man Sarah had described. Hundreds of faces flashed before her. Male, female, human, Twi'lek, Syrian, Ithorian. Soldiers serving the Jedi and even those serving the Sith. Kalib had healed them all. The only ones he turned away were the leaders of the armies. He saw himself a servant of the common folk. The Jedi Masters and the Sith Lords he always refused to help, with one notable exception. The Huntress could see him now, a Sith Lord in black armor. The curved hilt of a lightsaber clipped to his belt as he towered over the healer. They were locked in a battle of wills, the big man dying from some illness she couldn't discern. Even though they were decades removed from the encounter, the Iktochi sensed the raw power of the dark side emanating from him. It was like nothing she had seen or felt before, both terrifying and exhilarating. I see him, she told the princess. I see what he did to you. My father always said he would return. That was why he sent me away, made me change my name. Your father was right. Now that she had seen him in her visions, it was easy to skim the passing years looking for the imprint of the Sith Lord. 
Through the maelstrom of images, she easily picked out his next visit to the camp. Yet again he arrived in need of the healer's aid. This time, however, he did not come alone. There are others with him. A young woman. A young man. What happened? The princess asked, her voice trembling slightly. A series of shocking and violent images assailed the Iktochi's senses. She saw the healer's decapitated body, his limbs hacked from his torso and arranged in a gruesome display near the fire pit. Inside the cabin, the young man crouched in a corner, a babbling idiot driven mad by the horrors that had been visited upon him. The other two, the young woman and the Sith Lord, were harder to see, though she sensed they were still there. Something concealed them. Some power or spell cloaked their presence. When she tried to pierce the veil, something pushed back, snapping her out of her meditative trance and severing her connection with the past. She fell to her knees with a cry of anguish, clutching at her temples, her mind reeling. Sarah was at her side in an instant, crouching over her. What happened? What did you see? The huntress didn't speak right away. She had heard of this happening to others, but she'd never experienced it herself. It wasn't the images of Kaleeb's gruesome death that had caused her to recoil. It had been sorcery. Sith magic. A spell of concealment had hidden the Sith Lord and the young woman from the Jedi who had discovered the healer's body. The memory still carried the echo of the spell upon them. Even after a decade, it had been potent enough to momentarily overwhelm her. How can one individual command such power? Tell me what you saw, the princess demanded, rising to her feet. Your father's death, the huntress replied, also rising to her feet. He was there. The man in the black armor? Yes, I think so. It wasn't clear. He was there, the princess said with certainty. He was responsible for my father's death. There was another with him, the huntress said. A young blonde woman. I only care about the man in black. Can you find him? If he still lives, I will find him, the huntress assured her. She knew she would dream about the Sith Lord tonight and for many nights to come. Her sleep would be filled with pictures and images from his daily life. She would see how many suns rose in the sky each morning on whatever world he called home. She would see their color and their size. Whatever moons and stars marked the night sky would be revealed to her. Familiar landmarks would bubble up from her sleeping subconscious night after night. She would cross-reference these with a database containing descriptions of all the systems and worlds in the known galaxy, narrowing her search down until she had his exact location. It might take days or possibly even weeks, but in the end, she always found her prey. This time, however, she wasn't certain what the outcome would be. She had killed a Jedi on Doan, but this encounter would be far more dangerous. The lingering remnants of the Sith spell had been enough to thwart her efforts to peer into the past. How much stronger would the creator of that spell be in person? And who had cast the spell? The Sith Lord? Or the young woman with him? She still intended to take the job, of course. But she was smart enough to understand that her odds of success would increase if she wasn't acting alone. This man is powerful, the Huntress admitted. I don't know if I will be able to kill him without help. 
I don't want you to kill him. The princess replied, I want you to capture him. I want you to bring him to me alive. The assassin's lips twisted up in an angry sneer. I'm not a bounty hunter. I'll pay ten times your normal price, and I'll hire mercenaries to help you, as many as you want. Even if we capture him, how are we supposed to keep him prisoner while we bring him back to you? Normal restraints can't hold someone who has the power to call upon the Force. Leave that to me, the princess replied, pushing past the Iktochi and heading toward the small hut on the other side of the camp. Curious, the assassin followed her. Only a few meters on either side, the hut was little more than a crate with a doorway. On the floor inside, buried under a layer of sand that had blown in from the encroaching desert, were a tattered old curtain and a threadbare rug. The curtain looked as if it had been torn down. The rug, on the other hand, was still spread out across the far corner of the hut, though its fibers were caked with dirt. With the Iktochi watching from just outside the doorway, the princess pulled the carpet aside, revealing a trap door built into the floor. A small ladder led down to a tiny chamber below. My father built this cellar to store the tools of his trade, Sarah explained, climbing carefully down the ladder. The huntress entered the hut to get a better view, approaching the trap door and peering down into the darkness below. She heard a sharp crack as the princess ignited a glow lamp to dispel the gloom. From her vantage point, the assassin could just make out a series of shelves built into the cellar walls, each lined with jars, satchels, and other small containers. The princess rummaged through them quickly until she found what she was looking for, a nondescript bottle of a pale yellow liquid that she tucked into the folds of her clothes before making her way back up the ladder. Do you know what Senflax is? She asked when she was back above ground. The assassin only shrugged in response. It's a neurotoxin, extracted from a rare plant found only in the jungles of Cadania. What use could a healer have for poisons? She wanted to know. It's not really a poison. Senflax is more like a sedative, one that allows the patient to stay conscious while numbing all pain and sensation. It disrupts the nerves of the primary muscles, paralyzing them, but it won't cause the heart, lungs, or other vital organs to shut down no matter how large the dose. Even a paralyzed Sith Lord can kill with his mind, the Huntress warned. Sandflax also clouds the mind. It makes it impossible for the patient to focus or collect his thoughts. It takes away any semblance of free will. He can give simple answers to direct questions, but otherwise he is completely helpless. I saw my father give it to a pilot who had been badly burned in a chemical explosion. She continued, her eyes growing distant as she slipped back into the memories of her youth. His friends brought him here, but by the time they arrived, he'd been driven mad with pain. The Senflax took the pain away, while leaving the pilot still able to answer questions about what chemicals he'd been transporting so that my father would best know how to treat him. You're certain the neurotoxin will still work after all this time? The Huntress was aware that most people would have inquired about the fate of the injured pilot, but she wasn't most people. The only thing she cared about was the job she still wasn't sure she was going to accept. It should be fine as long as the bottle was sealed, Sarah confirmed. Once we get back to my ship, I can test it for potency. Do you know how to prepare it properly? The assassin demanded. How to administer it? How quickly it takes effect and how long it will last? 
I am my father's daughter, the princess proudly declared. He taught me everything he knew about healing and medicine. What would he say if he knew you were using his knowledge to seek revenge for his death? The huntress silently wondered. I can show you how to use the Sandflax to keep the prisoner under your control, Sarah continued. So will you take the job? The Iktochi took her time before answering. It wasn't the money that intrigued her. It was the challenge. The knowledge that she would be pitting herself against a foe more powerful than any she had faced before. She couldn't see the outcome of the mission. Too many conflicting forces were at work for the future to be clear. Yet she sensed that this was the moment she had been training for her entire life. I'd need at least ten well-trained warriors under my command, she said, speaking slowly. I'll give you twenty. Then we have a deal, the Iktochi replied, her faint smile making the dark lines tattooed on her lower lip curl up like an animal baring its fangs. Chapter 12 The return trip from Prakath to Siutrik 4 was taking even longer than the original journey. It should have been quicker, of course. Bane had already plotted the hyperspace routes that would lead him back out of the deep core. But in the hours he had spent on the volcanic world acquiring the holocron from Andedu's followers, several of the lanes he had used for the inbound flight had shifted and become unstable. Two had already collapsed, forcing him to recalculate his journey. Statistically, the chances of this happening in such a short time span were astronomically small. However, statistics often fell by the wayside when events were influenced by the Force. There were too many accounts of those who had come into possession of powerful Sith artifacts falling victim to grim misfortune to dismiss the tales as mere coincidence. Many believed the talismans of the Dark Side carried a curse. Others claimed they were somehow alive, as if the inanimate materials used to make a ring, amulet, or holocron could somehow achieve sentience. Those ignorant enough to believe in such superstition might have claimed that Andedu's holocron was fighting Bane. They would have declared the collapsing hyperspace roots were evidence of Andedu's vengeful spirit trapped within the Crystal Pyramid, seeking to destroy the thief who had defiled his sacred temple. Bane knew there was no inherent malevolence in the Holocron. It was merely a tool, a repository of knowledge. Yet he also understood how far-reaching the effects of the Force could be. A storm of violence swirled around items imbued with the magic of the ancient Sith. The strong could ride the storm to even greater heights. The weak would be swept up in its wake and destroyed. Andedu's Holocron was a talisman of undeniable power. Bane could feel the waves of dark side energy radiating from it. It was possible the fragile matrix of the Deep Core's space-time continuum had been subtly altered by these waves during his outbound journey, destabilizing the hyperlanes. He plotted a course of nearly 100 brief jumps, minimizing the danger by spending as much of the journey in real space as possible. It would take him nearly twice as long to get home, but it was better to be cautious than risk having his ship instantaneously crushed into a pinpoint singularity by the sudden collapse of a weakened hyperspace corridor. Fortunately, he had a way to help him pass the time. Essence transfer is the secret of eternal life, the hologram told him. 
Bane was sitting cross-legged on the floor of his ship, the holocron resting on the ground in front of him. A three-dimensional image of Darth Andedu, 20 centimeters tall, was projected just above the apex of the four-sided pyramid. The physical body will always weaken and fail, yet it is nothing but a shell or vessel. When it is time, it is possible to transfer your consciousness, your spirit, into a new vessel, as I have done with this holocron. Bane understood that the projection speaking to him was not the dead spirit of the ancient Sith Lord. It was only a simulated personality known as a gatekeeper. Every holocron had one. A virtual guide programmed with the personality traits of the original creator, the gatekeeper served as a guardian of the information stored within the artifact. The appearance of the gatekeeper often mirrored that of the holocron's creator, or at least the image the creator wanted others to see. Bane remembered how the gatekeeper of Balia Darzu's holocron would often change appearance, reflecting her changeling heritage. His own holocron projected an image of Bane still clad in his orbalisk armor. Although the parasites had proven impractical in real life, the horrific appearance of his body covered by the infestation was more visually impressive and intimidating. It also hinted at the sacrifices one must make to embrace the true power of the dark side, a valuable lesson for any who would follow his teachings. More importantly, the orbalisks masked his appearance and concealed his true identity. Should the holocron ever fall into the hands of the Jedi while he was still alive, they would be unable to recognize him from the gatekeeper's image. An even greater consideration, now that he was on the cusp of learning the secrets of eternal life. But first, he had to overcome the small but imposing figure who now stood before him. Andedu had chosen to represent himself as a heavily armored man bathed in a fiery glow of red and orange. Atop his head rested a tall, flat headdress, reminiscent of a high priest, encircled by a thin gold crown inset with gems. His face was sunken and drawn, almost skeletal. For the past four days, Bane had played the gatekeeper's games in an attempt to unlock the secrets of eternal life. He had delved deep into Andedu's holocron, accomplishing in less than a week what would have taken others months or even years. He had suffered through the tedious lessons. He had listened to the tiresome philosophical rants of the holographic image. He had learned nothing new about the Force. Though the Gatekeeper's words had revealed much about Darth Andedu's personality and beliefs. Like many of the ancient Sith, he was cruel, arrogant, self-centered, and short-sighted. His lessons mirrored those of Bane's instructors at the Sith Academy on Korriban. Lessons Bane had rejected decades ago as flawed. He had moved beyond their teachings. His understanding of the dark side had evolved. In creating the Rule of Two, he had ushered in a new era for the Sith. He had transcended the limited understanding of men like Andedu, and he was done listening to the Gatekeeper's ignorant litany. Show me the ritual of essence transfer, Bane demanded. The ritual is fraught with danger. Attempting it will cause the current vessel to be destroyed. Your body will be consumed by the power of the dark side. Bane clenched his teeth in exasperation. He had heard these warnings at least a dozen times before. Choose your new vessel carefully. If you select a living being, be warned that their own spirit will fight you as you try to possess their body. 
if their will is strong, you will fail and your consciousness will be cast into the void, doomed to an eternity of suffering and torment. The mention of the void always made Bane think of the Thought Bomb and the hundreds of Sith and Jedi spirits trapped forever by its detonation. It reminded him of what he had accomplished. It reminded him of who he was. I am not some student cowering in fear before the unimaginable power of the dark side. Bane snapped at the hologram. I am the Dark Lord of the Sith. Your title means nothing to me. I decide who is worthy to learn my secrets, and you are not yet ready. Perhaps you will never be. Over the past few days, Bane had come to this point too many times. He wasn't about to let the gatekeeper thwart him yet again. Bane snatched the holocron up from the floor with his right hand, ignoring the all-too-familiar trembling in his left. There was another way to get the knowledge he sought, but it was a path fraught with peril. In the construction of his own holocron, Bane had developed an intimate knowledge of how the talismans worked. Each was unique, a repository of everything its creator had learned during his or her long life. But there were similarities that were common to them all, including the one he now studied. Anderu's holocron was a four-sided pyramid made of smooth, dark crystal. Arcane glyphs of gold and red were etched into each face, the mystic symbols focusing and channeling the power of the dark side. Inside was an intricate matrix of crystal lattices and vertices. The fine interwoven filaments formed a data system capable of storing near-infinite amounts of knowledge, as well as providing a framework for the cognitive networks required to create the gatekeeper's appearance and personality. The entire system was controlled by the capstone, a single piece of black crystal perched atop the apex of the pyramid. Imbued with incredible power, the capstone stabilized the matrix structure, allowing the individual pieces of data to be accessed instantaneously by the gatekeeper. However, it was possible to circumvent the gatekeeper, but only by one strong enough to survive the attempt. If Bane's will faltered, or if the power of Andedu's holocron was more than he could handle, then his mind would be destroyed. His identity would be devoured by the talisman, leaving his body a mindless husk. It was a desperate gamble, but there was no other way to get what he needed, not in time to help him against Xana. If you will not give me what I want, he shouted at the gatekeeper, then I will take it! Reaching out with the force, he plunged his awareness into the depths of the pyramid's inner workings as the gatekeeper let loose a howl of impotent rage, thrusting his consciousness directly into the capstone. Bane let his will invade the small, four-sided talisman, just as he himself had invaded the stronghold of Vendetta's cult back on Tracketh. For a brief instant, he could feel the burning inferno of power trapped within, threatening to consume his identity. Bane welcomed the pain, feeding on it and transforming it, along with all the frustration and anger he had built up over the past four days into a raging, swirling storm of dark side energy. Then, bit by bit, he began to impose order on the chaos, bending it to his will. Using the Force, Bane began to make subtle adjustments to the holocron's crystal matrix, 
He began to manipulate the arrangement of the filaments, twisting, turning, and shifting them with subtle, immeasurable adjustments as he worked his way deeper and deeper into the data in pursuit of what he sought. In many ways, it was like slicing a secure computer network, only a million times more complex. With each adjustment, the gatekeeper's image flickered and cried out, but Bain was oblivious to the simulation's artificial suffering. For several hours he continued his work, his body perspiring heavily, until he finally found what he sought. The ritual of essence transference. Andedu's secret of eternal life. With one final push of the force, he reached out with his mind and seized what he had been searching for. With the aid of the gatekeeper, the information would have taken weeks to absorb and learn. Bane, however, had gone right to the source. The knowledge streamed directly from the holocron into his mind, raw and unfiltered. Thousands of images flooded his consciousness. An explosion of sights, sounds, and thoughts that caused him to drop the holocron to the floor, breaking the connection. The gatekeeper's image vanished, leaving Bane alone in the ship, still sitting cross-legged on the floor. He was slumped forward, his breath coming in heavy gasps. His clothes were soaked in sweat. His body shivered with exhaustion. Slowly, he got to his feet and made his way over to the pilot's seat. He walked with the stumbling gait of a man drunk in Mandalorian wine, resting his hand on the wall for support. His head was swimming, lost in the secrets he had wrenched from the holocron's depths. As he collapsed into the seat, the control console began to beep softly. It took him several seconds to realize the latest hyperspace jump on his return journey was reaching an end, though there were still many more jumps to go. He needed to plot a course for the next leg of the trip, but he was in no state to contemplate that right now, not while his addled mind was still wrestling with what he'd learned. He needed time to process the information from the holocron, to wrap his head around it, to analyze and compartmentalize all the facts arranging them into some semblance of rational thought. Bane reached out and activated the autopilot, content to let the ship drift slowly through space while he recovered. Then he closed his eyes and let the darkness of sleep envelop him. Chapter 13 Consciousness returned slowly to Sethearth. It was as if his mind were swimming through a swamp, struggling to escape the murky depths of his own subconscious. Pushing up through the sludge, he finally broke the surface, though the lingering memories of strange dreams and nightmares still prowled the dark corners of his mind. On some level, he was aware the nightmares had nearly driven him mad. They had been on the verge of destroying him, but Seth had refused to succumb. Bit by bit, he had managed to shove them back down to the hidden recesses of his mind where they belonged, separating fantasy from reality one small piece at a time. How long was I out, he wondered, keeping his eyes closed and his breathing steady so as not to reveal he had woken up. Feels like days. He was in his own room, that much he was sure of. He recognized the smell of his perfumed pillow the soft feel of silk sheets against his skin, the luxurious comfort of his down-filled mattress. Everything else was still a blur. 
Come on, Set, let's figure this out. Careful to avoid the horrors of his recent nightmares, Set stretched his memory back, trying to piece together exactly what had happened to him. The blonde woman. She had been waiting in his mansion when he returned home from the party. It wasn't the first time that had happened, though this was the first time his uninvited guest had tried to kill him. Probably wasn't really trying to kill you, he reminded himself, seeing as how you're still alive. They had fought, that much he remembered clearly. They had fought and she had beaten him. Though his eyes were still closed, Set was beginning to assemble a detailed image of his surroundings by reaching out with the Force. He was in his own bed, in his own room, but he wasn't alone. Someone else was there. The woman. Claimed she was a Sith. He still had no idea why she had broken into his home. He couldn't even guess why she had left him alive, but he was determined to make her regret it. Pushing out gently with his mind, he scanned the room for his lightsaber. It was resting on his dressing table on the far side of the room. The woman was sitting in a chair at the foot of the bed, patiently waiting for him to wake up. Would he be able to use the force to pull the lightsaber across the room and into his hand before she could react? And then what? She already beat you once. Maybe this time he could surprise her, catch her off guard. Carefully, he began to gather his power. I thought you were smarter than that, the woman said. Set froze. Going to have to talk your way out of this one. Time to turn on the charm. He opened his eyes and gave an easy laugh. <laughs> Can't blame a guy for trying. He said with a shrug, sitting up in bed. He was still dressed in the same clothes he had worn to the party. That was quite an entrance you made last night, he said. Three nights ago, she corrected, returning his smile with a humorless stare. I was beginning to wonder if you would be trapped in your nightmares forever. Her words caused his mind to momentarily flash back to the terrors he was still struggling to suppress, and he shuddered involuntarily. I managed to find my way out, he answered, his voice grimmer than he intended. What did you do to me, some kind of drug? If that's what you really think, she said, her lip curling up in disdain, then I'm wasting my time here. There was an implied threat in her words, and Set's survival instincts kicked into high gear. Get on the ball, Set. You don't want to make this woman angry. Sorcery. He said, after a second of deliberation, You said you were a Sith. You attacked my mind with some kind of spell. She nodded and Set saw her shoulders relax. So she had been on the verge of killing him for his ignorance. Are you the assassin who killed Med Tandar? He asked, still trying to fit everything together. The woman shook her head, blonde curls swaying slightly. She's attractive enough if you can get past the whole Sith sorceress thing. You followed me here from Doan, said Guest, desperately looking for some piece of information he could use. If he figured out what she was after, then he'd have something to bargain with. You want the talismans? You're half right, she replied. I followed you from Doan, but I'm not interested in the talismans. Set wasn't used to being at a disadvantage. If he didn't have it, he was usually smart enough to figure out a way to get it. 
Here, however, he was utterly at a loss as to the woman's motives and goals. And so he had no recourse but to fall back on the one thing he hated most of all. Total honesty. I have absolutely no idea what you want with me. My name is Darth Zana, she explained, and I am looking for an apprentice. On one level, Set was even more confused than before. But part of his mind, the part that had kept him one step ahead of the Jedi for the past ten years, seized on her words. Now you know what she wants. Figure out a way to use it. Why are you looking for an apprentice? He asked carefully, wary of enraging her with his lack of understanding. The Jedi believe the Sith are extinct, she began. But you can plainly see by my presence that the Jedi are wrong. The Sith still exist, but now we number only two. One master and one apprentice. One to embody the power of the dark side, the other to crave it. So you want to increase your numbers, said Reasoned. You're seeking recruits to join your cause and rebuild the Sith armies. That is the path to failure, Xana replied. The history of the Sith has proven that in greater numbers, the Sith will always turn their hatred against one another. It is inevitable. It is the way of the dark side. The only way we can survive is by following the rule of two. Our numbers can never grow beyond this. The master will train his apprentice in the ways of the Sith until one day she must challenge him. If she proves unworthy, the master will destroy her and choose a new apprentice. If she proves the stronger, the master will fall and she will become the new Dark Lord of the Sith and choose an apprentice of her own. Set felt like things were becoming clearer now. You are the apprentice. You think it's time to challenge your master and you want me to help you defeat him. No! She snapped, causing Set to flinch in his bed. That is the old way. Lesser followers would unite their inferior skills to bring down a strong leader, weakening the order. This goes against everything the Rule of Two stands for. If I am to become the Dark Lord of the Sith, I must prove myself by facing my master alone. If I am unworthy, then I will fall, but the Order will remain strong under his leadership. Do you understand? Set understood all too well. The rule of two guarantees that each master will be more powerful than the one who came before. It culls the weak. Good for the Sith as a whole, but not so great if you're the one getting culled. Xana may have been willing to sacrifice herself for the greater good of the Sith Order, but Set wasn't ready to do the same. Of course, he was smart enough not to say so out loud. Instead, he asked, what made you choose me? I have been seeking an apprentice for some time now, Zana explained. When I stumbled across your path on Doan, I knew it was more than mere chance. You are strong in the Force, and you have rejected the Jedi and their teachings. You are intelligent and resourceful, but your potential is unfulfilled. You have not dedicated yourself to the dark side. In your quest for the talismans of the ancient Sith, you're like a child playing with his toys. You have no thoughts of the future, no ambition, no plan, no vision. That will change if you agree to be my apprentice. 
Join me, and I will show you your destiny. My destiny? For thousands of years, the Jedi and Sith have waged an endless war against each other. The Jedi believe the war is over. They think the Sith are gone. But we still exist in the shadows, planning our revenge. With patience and cunning, we are laying the seeds of our ultimate victory. Generation after generation, our power and influence will grow until one day we will destroy the Jedi and the Sith will rule the galaxy. Set wasn't interested in ruling the galaxy or destroying the Jedi. It sounded like a lot of work. It's not like you've got a lot of options. She's not going to just let you walk away if you refuse. Aloud, he said, The rule of two dictates there can only ever be two Sith. So how can you take me as an apprentice if your master is still alive? If you accept my offer, you will accompany me as I go to face my master. Xana explained, But you must not interfere. If he falls... Then I will take you on as my apprentice. What happens to me if you fail? Set wondered. If I die, my master will need a new apprentice. If he judges you worthy, then you will replace me. If not... There was no need for her to finish the thought. Set wasn't crazy about the deal, but he understood the position he was in. Refuse, and she would kill him. Except... And there was a good chance he would die anyway if Xana proved weaker than her master. And even if she was victorious, he would be returning to the life of an apprentice, the life he had been eager to escape while he was with the Jedi. But there was one thing worthwhile in Xana's offer. He had been given a glimpse of what she was capable of during their one-sided battle in his living room. It might be worth a few years of following orders and calling her master if he could learn to command that kind of power for himself. You said you can help me reach my full potential. Teach me how to unlock the true power of the dark side. If you follow me, Xana promised, you will become more powerful than you ever imagined. Xana could sense Sedhart's reluctance to become her apprentice. He lacked the burning hatred of the Jedi and what they represented. He had little interest in embracing the greater destiny of the Sith. But it was also obvious that he was tempted by her promises of individual power. Set cared only for himself. He would accept her offer only because he saw it as a means to an end, a way to make himself stronger. Xana knew this and she was prepared to accept it. She would have preferred to find an apprentice eager to learn the Sith philosophies Bane had imbued in her. But in the lack of a better option, she was willing to work with what she had. She understood the risks, but nothing of importance had ever been accomplished without risk. Over the first few years of his training, she would keep a close eye on Set. She would be wary of treachery and deceit, as little by little she exposed him to the greater truths Bane had taught her. She would use his lust for personal power as the bait to draw him deeper and deeper into the ways of the Sith. In time, Set would come to accept the teachings and philosophies as she had done. As his understanding of the dark side evolved, he would gain the vision to see beyond his own petty wants and desires. 
he would recognize their need to destroy the Jedi, and he would embrace the ultimate destiny of the Sith. And if he did not, then she would destroy him and find another to serve her. All this was running through her mind as she watched the silver-haired Jedi rubbing his chin, contemplating the prospect of becoming her apprentice. I accept, he said at last, and I am honored you have chosen me. No, you're not, she said, but someday you will be. Chapter 14 We should have force pikes for this job, Captain Jeter grumbled. They've got twice the juice of these criffing stun rifles. Force pikes can kill if you're not careful, the huntress reminded him, though she was only half paying attention to the conversation. The princess wants him taken alive. Besides, you'd never get close enough to use them. They were inside the mansion of Sep Omek, though the huntress doubted that was the man's real name. Not that it mattered. She hadn't needed a name to track him here to the estate on Seutric Four. The Sith Lord had covered his tracks well, hiding his true identity behind layers of middle beings and go-betweens and making it virtually impossible for anyone to connect him to the events on Ambria through normal methods. But all his careful preparations couldn't guard against the Iktochi's unique powers. Guided by the images in her dreams and her infallible instincts, the Huntress had found her quarry, as she always did. How long till he gets here? Captain Jeter wanted to know. Soon, she replied. Tell your team to get into position. Her visions had shown her the house would be empty when they arrived, just as they had shown her that the owner would be returning this very same night. Can you be more specific? Jeter asked. Twenty minutes, an hour, two? It doesn't work that way, she muttered absently, her eyes picking out locations for them to set their trap. She'd already scouted out the estate in detail, committing every room to memory as she'd gone through and disabled every alarm and anti-intruder system on the grounds. She'd even managed to slice her way past the security panel on the small building at the rear of the grounds. At first she had thought it might be some kind of arsenal or weapons bunker, but once she managed to open the door, she realized it was a library. Instead of data pads or holodisks, however, the shelves had groaned under the weight of ancient leather-bound books and scrolls of yellowed parchment. There was something else inside the building that had given her pause, however. Resting on a pedestal near the back of the library was a small, four-sided crystal pyramid. The Huntress had no need to steal from her victims. She'd ignored the priceless works of art and other valuables scattered around the mansion but there was something oddly compelling about this piece. Unsure what it could be, she had somehow felt drawn to it, and she'd slipped it into one of the pockets beneath her robe before continuing her investigation of the grounds. Once she was done, she'd signal for Jeddah and the others that it was safe to come in and begin their preparations. Something wrong? The captain asked. No, she replied, annoyed at herself for getting distracted. Just looking for places to set your team up. This job was unlike any the Huntress had ever taken before. It wasn't simply the mercenary she was working with, or the fact she was supposed to take her victim alive. Ever since she'd visited the small camp on Ambria, the tall, bald man and the blonde woman had haunted her dreams. Some of what she had seen had helped lead her here to Seutric. But there were other images, too. Bewildering, troubled visions that she was unable to decipher. 
She had been witness to dozens of battles between the pair. She had watched the man kill the woman, yet she had also seen the woman kill the man. She understood these were visions of the future, each a possible reality that might or might not come to pass. Usually when she caught glimpses of the future, however, there was purpose or meaning behind them. The visions would help direct and guide her actions. Yet this seemingly random collage of images did nothing but confuse her. And so she had done her best to ignore them and focus on the job she had been hired for. The princess had offered her 20 well-trained mercenaries for the job, and she had been as good as her word. 12 men and eight women, all with prior military experience, had accompanied the Huntress to the world. She had also sent along Captain Jeter, a senior member of the Doan Royal Guard. The Doan noble houses had a long history of supplementing their numbers with hired soldiers for particularly dangerous missions, and Jeter had handpicked this particular team from crews he'd worked with in the past. Technically, the Mercs answered to Jeter, though he in turn answered to the Huntress. That was fine by her. Mercenaries had been known to cut and run if things went bad on a job, but if they had worked with the captain in the past, they were more likely to stick with the battle plan right to the end. The front entrance to the mansion was open and spacious. The door opened onto a large foyer, which flowed into an oversized sitting room furnished with two couches and a large glass table. A spiral staircase led off to one side, curling up to a balcony that overlooked the sitting room. We should try to take him here when he first comes in, she said. He'll sense that something is wrong right away, so we need to hit him fast. Set up a pair of sonic detonators on either side of the door, Jeter said into his radio. Instantly, two of the soldiers ran over to comply with his orders. I fought against the Sith, you know, Jeter told her as the Huntress turned slowly in place, scoping out the rest of the room. Twenty years ago, during the war, I was barely more than a kid. That's probably why the princess sent you along. The Iktochi replied absently. I'm surprised she didn't send Lucia with us, Jeter noted. She fought for the Sith during the war. Probably knows their tactics better than anyone. She cares for Lucia, the Huntress thought. She knows how dangerous this mission will be. She is not expendable like the rest of us. Out loud, she told him, position two of your team with the stun rifles up on that balcony at the top of the stairs. That should give them a clear shot down here into the foyer. I wish we had carbonite guns, Jeddar lamented. Freeze him solid. The Huntress had already considered and discarded that idea. Same problem as the Force Bikes. You have to get in too close for them to be effective. And the carbonite will only freeze him for a few minutes. What are we supposed to do when he thaws out? The Tangle guns aren't any better, he countered. A lightsaber will slice through the webbing like it was made of flimsy. They aren't meant to hold him, the Iktochi explained. They only have to slow him down long enough for me to administer the Senflax. She held up a long, thin blade to illustrate her point. The edge was coated with the potent neurotoxin. According to the princess, any wound deep enough to draw blood would get the poison into his system. After the toxin is introduced... We'll have to keep the pressure on, she reminded the captain. If we even give him a chance to breathe, he'll recognize that the drug is in his system. He might have some way to counter it with the force. 
How long after you cut him before that stuff starts to take effect? Thirty, maybe forty seconds. Assuming Sarah knows what she's talking about. That's a long time for a bunch of soldiers to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Sith. There really wasn't anything she could say to reassure him, so she didn't bother with an answer. Make sure your unit remembers that this is a two-stage attack, she told him. The first stage needs to distract him long enough to give me an opening. After that, hit him with everything we've got. Can you really see the future? The captain asked after passing on her instructions to the team. Sometimes. The future is always in motion. It's not always clear. Are we going to get out of this alive? Some of us might, she replied, not mentioning the vision she had of Jeddah's broken body lying lifeless on the mansion's marble floor. When Bane returned to see Utric, he was surprised to find Xana's ship still gone. But he was grateful that she wouldn't be waiting for him back at the mansion. He was in no shape to do battle with her now. He was even too tired to come up with a lie to explain his absence without raising her suspicions. Yet as his airspeeder approached his mansion on the horizon, he knew that even if Xana had been waiting for him, his journey would still have been worthwhile. Anderu's knowledge was his now. Over the past few days, his brain had processed the raw information he had stolen to the point of full comprehension. He fully understood the ritual of essence transfer. He had learned the techniques that would allow him to move his consciousness from his own failing body into another. He just needed to select an appropriate victim. Finding a new body to inhabit was the most difficult part of the ritual. He needed someone physically strong enough to withstand the massive quantities of dark side energy he would call on over the coming years, but at the same time, he needed someone mentally vulnerable enough for him to overpower their will. The best candidate would be an engineered clone body, an empty shell with no thoughts or identity of its own. But creating a suitable clone could take years, and Bane wasn't convinced he had that much time left. He would have to try to possess the body of a living victim, a very dangerous course of action. He would only have one chance. No matter the outcome, his own body would be destroyed in the process. And if his target possessed a will strong enough to resist his assault, the attempt would fail, banishing his spirit to the void for all eternity. He brought the airspeeder in for a landing and climbed from the vehicle, pausing only to grab his travel pack, a simple duffel bag with the holocron tucked safely away inside. With slow, heavy steps, he approached the front door of the mansion. Asked to be someone young, under 30. He opened the door and stepped inside, letting it swing shut behind him. Naive and inexperienced. Maybe... He froze. Someone else was in the mansion. He could feel the intruders everywhere, hiding around corners in the hallways, crouched on the stairs, ducking behind the furniture, perched on the balcony above. All this flashed through Bane's mind in less than a tenth of a second, just enough time for it to register before the sonic detonators on either side of him went off. Their ear-splitting shriek staggered Bane, causing him to stumble forward into the room and away from the door in possible escape. His hands instinctively flew up and clutched at his ears, his travel pack dropping to the floor. And then, the enemy fell upon him. They poured out like a swarm of insects, bursting into view from every side. Four soldiers armed with stun rifles sent a barrage of bolts raining down from the balcony. 
Bane, still reeling from the sonic detonators, barely had enough time to throw up a protective barrier to shield him from the assault. As he did so, he felt something fighting him. Some power was trying to block his ability to call upon the force to shield himself. It wasn't strong enough to stop him, but it did hinder his efforts just enough so that a flicker of energy passed through the barrier. His muscles seized as he was hit. His back arched, and his arms and head were thrown back. Every nerve in Bane's body lit up as if it were on fire. The pain lasted only an instant, but it was enough to knock him to the floor in a crumpled heap. He didn't stay down, however. He sprang back to his feet, simultaneously drawing his lightsaber with his right hand as he sent a blast of lightning out from the fingertips of his left. The violet bolts should have incinerated all four of his targets on the balcony, yet again, the strange power interfering with his ability to draw upon the Force hindered his efforts. Three of the victims were electrocuted, dying before they even had a chance to scream. The fourth, however, managed to throw herself back from the balcony's edge, evading the deadly attack. Bane never got a chance to finish her off. A pair of soldiers emerged from a hallway on the left, and three more appeared from the hall on the right. They opened fire with tangle guns, sending out long streams of sticky synthetic webbing. The soldiers were smart. They coordinated their efforts. Two fired at his feet, looking to glue him to the floor. The others aimed for the chest and torso, looking to pin his arms to his sides with the viscous strings. But Bane wasn't about to let himself become immobilized. Leaping up, he grabbed onto the chandelier hanging from the ceiling, holding himself with his free hand. Swinging his legs to build momentum, he launched himself up over the railing and onto the balcony, giving him the advantage of higher ground. He came down with a heavy thud, the inexplicable power that still impeded his connection to the Force, robbing him of a graceful landing. The bodies of the three dead soldiers were scattered about him. To his right were the stairs, leading back down to the foyer. Straight ahead was a long hall, leading to another wing of the mansion. A female Tochi stood at the far end of the hall, a long, thin knife held in each hand. She grinned at Bane, and in that moment he knew who was interfering with his ability to use the Force. She broke into a run, charging down the hall toward him. Bane dropped into a fighting crouch to meet her attack, knowing her knives were no match for his lightsaber. It was only then that he noticed the flash grenades lying by the dead bodies at his feet. They exploded with a burst of intense light and chemical smoke that blinded Bane. Disoriented, he fell back against the balcony's railing. An instant later, he felt the sole of the Iktochi's boots strike him hard in the chest, sending him tumbling backward over the banister to the marble floor four meters below. He hit the ground hard enough to knock the breath from his body, leaving him gasping for air. The impact jarred his lightsaber from his grip, sending it skittering across the floor. An instant later, his prone form was enveloped by the webbing from the tangle guns, pinning him to the ground. Blind and immobilized, Darth Bane's fury saved him. Years of training allowed him to focus all his pain and rage in one single instant, drawing on it so he could unleash the full power of the dark side. Once again, he felt the Iktochi's barrier opposing his efforts, but this time he tore through it like it wasn't even there. For a moment, it was as if the world around him was frozen in place. Though his eyes were still suffering the effects of the flash grenade, the force rushing through his body gave him an otherworldly awareness of his surroundings. 
the scene was burned into his brain in exquisite detail. The soldiers were scattered about the foyer, scrambling to take up new positions in preparation for the next stage of the battle. They were well trained, but he could still sense their fear. They knew the fight was far from over. The Iktochi had leapt over the railing in pursuit of him. She hung poised in the air above him, her twin blades held out to either side as she braced for landing. Bane could even see himself lying on the floor, buried beneath a thick, wet blanket of rapidly drying chemical adhesive. The frozen tableau lasted only a fraction of an instant, but it told the Dark Lord everything he needed to know. And then the instant was gone, and everything became a blur of motion again. The Iktochi landed just as Bane unleashed a wave of crackling electricity that burned away the webbing of the tangle guns. She dropped to one knee and tried to stab her knives into him as he lay on the floor, but through the force, Bane saw her coming. He managed to roll aside, escaping with only a long, deep cut along one of his forearms as he scrambled back to his feet. In response to his call, his lightsaber flew up from the floor and into his waiting hand, but the Iktochi was already retreating. Now that he was no longer helpless, she was eager to fall back and let others step in. Several more flash grenades exploded around him, but Bane was unaffected. He was no longer relying on his physical sight to guide him. Fresh streams of webbing arced across the room toward him, but this time he incinerated them while they were still in the air. Half a dozen concussion grenades tossed in from every side clattered on the floor at his feet. As they exploded, Bane simply enveloped himself in the force creating a protective cocoon that absorbed the impact and left him standing completely unharmed. Two men popped up from behind a nearby couch and fired at him from point-blank range with their stun guns. Bane slapped the incoming bolts away with his lightsaber, then thrust out a hand to send the couch slamming straight back into the wall, crushing the men who'd been using it for cover. Then he was on the move, bearing down on two of the soldiers carrying tangle guns. He sliced them both in half horizontally with a single blow from his lightsaber, carving a perfect line just above their belts. Another volley of stun bolts came too late to save them. Bane was already gone. A single flip and he was back on the balcony again, face to face with the Iktochi. You can't escape, he told her. I wasn't trying to, she hissed back at him, lunging forward with her knives. She was quicker than Bane expected coming in low and fast. He didn't have time to simply chop her down. Instead, he had to spin out of the way. He tried to take one of her arms with his lightsaber on a counterthrust as she slipped past. But the Iktochi anticipated his move and managed to contort her body so that his blade caught nothing but air. They'd switched positions from their first engagement. She was now the one standing with her back to the balcony railing. Bane thrust out with the force, the impact sending her hurtling backward over the railing as her kick had done to him less than a minute earlier. Somehow the Iktochi managed to turn in the air so that she landed on her feet. Because of this, she was able to spring to safety when Bane sent a blast of lightning hurtling down toward her, instead of her charred corpse. It left only a smoking circle on the floor. Soldiers were firing their stun guns at him again from the stairwell. Bane didn't even bother to strike back at them. He simply dodged their attack by vaulting over the railing and dropping back down to the floor below. The soldiers were nothing to him. It was the Iktochi he was interested in now. She was the only opponent who posed any real threat. Eliminate her, 
and he could deal with the soldiers at his leisure. He landed on the floor in a crouch, absorbing the impact, and then everything went black. The Huntress couldn't say how long it had been since she'd carved her Senflax-coated blade through the flesh of the Sith Lord's forearm, but the neurotoxin had to take effect soon. Jeddar was dead, crushed against the wall by a piece of flying furniture. At least five other soldiers were already down, too. The Sith Lord was focusing his efforts on her. The Iktochi knew she couldn't beat him. He was too strong. The tricks she had used against the Jedi had slowed him down at first, but now they had no effect at all. The Senflax was her only hope of surviving. She saw the Sith leaping down from the balcony, coming after her. He hit the floor, turned toward her, and collapsed. The big man lay on his side, eyes open and seeming to stare right at her. The pupils were bloodshot from the chemicals in the flash grenades. The Huntress waited until he blinked. Then, seeing no other signs of movement, she held up her hand and shouted, Cease fire! Cease fire! She thought briefly that his paralysis might be a trick, then discarded the notion. The Sith didn't need subterfuge to win the battle. It was obvious he had them overmatched. The only explanation was that Sarah's drug had finally worked its magic. According to the instructions she had been given, they had four hours before they needed to administer the next dose. With Jeddar dead, the hired soldiers were staring at her, waiting for their next orders. The Huntress closed her eyes and reached out with her mind, seeking guidance. Someone else was coming. The blonde woman from the camp on Ambria. You three, go bring the airspeeders around to the front of the house, the Huntress barked. The rest of you gather up the bodies. Don't leave anything behind that could link this to the princess. The survivors hustled to follow her commands. She didn't bother to tell them to hurry. They were already moving as fast as they could, eager to get away from this place where so many of their comrades in arms had fallen. On an impulse, she bent down and retrieved the now-extinguished lightsaber from where it lay on the floor beside the fallen Sith. She turned the curved handle over, inspecting it carefully. She ignited the weapon and was surprised by its weightlessness. What about this? One of the soldiers asked, holding up the duffel bag the Sith had dropped in the first few seconds of the attack. Take it with us, she said absently, not even bothering to look over. Give it to the princess. Infatuated with her new toy, she made a few slow experimental swings with the unfamiliar weapon before extinguishing it and secreting it away in one of the pockets inside her robe, just as she had done with the strange crystal pyramid from the library out back. Five minutes later, they had the prisoner and their casualties in the back of the speeders, and they were heading to the drop shuttle that would take them back to Doan. Chapter 15 As Xana brought the victory in to touch down in her designated hangar at the Sutric Four Starport, she felt a sudden sense of uneasiness. Something wrong? Set asked from the passenger seat, picking up on her discomfort. I'm about to challenge my master in a battle to the death, and I'm still not sure if I made a mistake picking you as my apprentice, she thought, then said out loud, it's nothing. Set shrugged. 
He was sitting with his chair reclined, his legs stretched out, and his feet resting on the dash. If he was feeling any anxiety himself, it was well masked. With the ship on the ground, Zana cut the engines. She couldn't shake the feeling that something was very wrong, but she had come too far to turn back now. Is this a premonition of my own death? Will Bane end my life tonight? What now? Set asked, sitting up and swinging his legs down to the floor. When he had first accepted Zana's offer, she had sensed a clear reluctance in him. Over the course of the trip to Sutric, however, he seemed to have warmed to the idea. Now he appeared almost eager, though Zana was aware this could all be an act. When we arrive at the estate, you need to wait outside, she said out loud. My master doesn't like uninvited guests. I'll hide in the bushes like a scared little cath pup, he promised. This isn't a game, she warned him. Everything's a game, he replied. This is just one you really can't afford to lose. If I lose, you might end up dead too. Or I could end up as your master's new apprentice, he countered with a sly grin. You wouldn't find him nearly as tolerant of your impertinence. Then I truly hope you win. Is that all, master? When Xana nodded, Set rose from his seat and executed a deep bow, his head dipping down so low, his long hair tumbled forward to hang like a silver curtain covering his head and face. Lead and I will follow, he offered, though there was something almost mocking in his tone. She couldn't help but wonder what Bane would have done in response to Set's irreverent behavior. The consequences would no doubt have been harsh. Xana, however, was content to let the Dark Jedi have his fun. She had wounded his ego, humiliating him by so easily overpowering him during their confrontation. It was important to let him regain his confidence. And if his jests made it easier for him to accept his role as apprentice, she was willing to put up with them. To a point. Set understood all this, of course. She knew he was pushing her, testing the limits and boundaries of their relationship. At the same time, Xana had been testing him. So far, he had been smart enough to know where to draw the line. Leaving their bags on the ship, Xana and Set made their way from the hangar to the small customs building at the front of the starport. Chet, the young customs officer who had spoken to her the last time she'd left Sutrik, was on duty again. Good evening, Mistress Omek, he said with a tilt of his head. I'll have someone bring your speeder around. Thank you, Chet. Want me to send someone for your bags? I'll pick them up in the morning, if I'm still alive, she thought. Aren't you going to introduce me to your friend? Set chimed in. Xana silenced him with a glare. Chet obviously caught the exchange, but what he made of it, Xana wasn't sure. A few seconds of silence passed before the customs official said, May I speak with you alone for a moment, Mr. Sobek? Curious, Xana nodded at Set who turned and walked away in the other direction, looking mildly offended. Had an unregistered dropship into atmosphere a few hours ago, Chet whispered once Set was out of earshot, touched down in the jungle about a hundred kilometers east of the starport. Odd, Xana thought. Seutric 4 was located at the nexus of several key trade routes, but the tariffs and taxes charged by the customs stations were minimal. No legitimate merchant would incur the risk of landing in the untamed jungle just to avoid some paperwork and save a handful of credits. 
And there weren't any smuggling operations active in the region. If there were, she and Bane would have known about them. Any idea who they were? Chet shrugged. They landed outside our jurisdiction, and they didn't send off an emergency beacon, so nobody bothered to send a patrol to investigate. She wasn't surprised at the lack of official urgency generated by the unregistered vessel. Siutric was generally a law-abiding world. As a result, planetary security was somewhat lax. It was one of the reasons Bane had chosen to take up residence here. She was intrigued, however. Did the dropship have anything to do with the unease she'd felt upon landing? You said they touched down to the east. Our estate is on the eastern edge of the city, she thought. Yeah. Showed up on the census a couple of hours before your brother got back. My brother? Oh, Chet said, mildly surprised. I just assumed you knew. He left the day after you did. Just got back tonight. Any idea where he went? The customs official shook his head. Sorry. Xana's mind was spinning with a thousand possibilities as the valet arrived with her speeder. Bane almost never left Sutrik. If he had business, people came to him. Or he sent Xana. Something must have come up that was too important for him to wait for her to get back. Either that, or he had business he wanted to deal with personally. And if that was the case, was it possible he had sent her to Doan as a way to get rid of her temporarily? She could think of only one reason Bane would have wanted to keep her from knowing about his journey. He was looking for someone to replace her. Trouble? Said asked, wandering over to see what was going on. It's fine, Xana replied, not wanting to reveal her apprehension to either of the men. She climbed into the speeder and nodded at Set to do the same. Thanks for the update, Chet. As the speeder roared to life and took to the air, she began to consider her options. If Bane was alone, she would challenge him as she planned. However, if Bane had found someone else to become his heir, things would get more complicated. If Bane had cast her aside, did the rule of two still apply to her? Or would Bane and his new apprentice combine their strength to defeat her as an enemy of the Sith. If that happened, she wouldn't be able to survive alone. If things went bad, she didn't really know if the Dark Jedi sitting beside her would come to her aid, but she didn't have any real choice. She had decided to confront Bane tonight, and she wasn't about to turn back now. She'd waited too long for this moment, put it off too many times before. Be on your guard when we land, she warned Set. I'm always on guard, he assured her. Xana's apprehension continued to mount as she approached the estate, but as she drew nearer, she realized she couldn't sense her master's presence. Puzzled, she brought the speeder into land and saw that the front door was wide open. Wait here, she instructed Set. With one hand on the hilt of her lightsaber, she approached the open door cautiously and peeked inside. At first glance, the damage was almost more than she could comprehend. The plaster on the walls was cracked and burned in at least a dozen places. The marble floors were scratched and scorched. Sticky strands of synthetic webbing and flakes of ash were everywhere. Every piece of furniture she could see was either smashed or overturned. Carefully, she made her way upstairs, still wary despite not sensing anyone else in the building. A quick inspection of the various rooms assured her that there was no immediate danger. 
and she sheathed her lightsaber. It seemed as if most of the damage had been confined to the foyer and the sitting room just off the mansion's entrance. If there were answers to be had, she'd most likely find them there. When she returned to the front of the manse, she wasn't surprised to see that Set had disobeyed her orders. He was sitting on a chair that had survived relatively unscathed, his legs crossed and a glass of wine in his hand, casually waiting for her to arrive. A freshly opened bottle stood beside him on the floor. Your master has excellent taste, he said, raising the glass and drinking the toast to the absent host. It was clear from the evidence that someone had attacked Bane in the mansion, and it was only logical to assume they must have been on the dropship. Who they were and why they had come, however, were still mysteries she couldn't solve. I told you to wait in the speeder, she said, descending the stairs and closing the mansion door. I was bored, he answered with a shrug, taking another sip of wine before changing topics. Looks like that confrontation you were expecting isn't going to happen after all. I guess you're the new Sith Master by default. It doesn't work that way, Xana muttered. Besides, Darth Bane's still alive. If he was dead, I would have felt it. Somehow I was afraid you'd say that, he said, bending forward to grab the wine bottle and refill his empty glass. Any idea who might have done this? None of our enemies even knows the Sith still exist. Xana reminded him. I get the feeling there's something you're not telling me, Set noted. A second later, he added, Master. Bane just arrived back on Seutric tonight. She saw no reason not to tell him what she had learned. And Chet told me an unidentified dropship touched down near the estate a short time before he arrived. You think the two are related? I don't believe in coincidence, she replied. After a moment, she decided to come clean with Set. I think Bane might have sent me to Doan just to get me out of the way for a while. I think he was actually interested in something completely unrelated. Don't be so sure, Set replied, holding up what appeared to be a small blue button. Where did you find that? Wedged into the wreckage of what used to be a couch over there in the corner, he replied, tossing it to her. She reached out with one hand, easily snatching it from the air. A splash of dried blood was smeared across the surface, partially obscuring the gold insignia. That's the symbol of the Doan Royal House, Set told her as she studied the button. Doan? Xana was more confused than ever. Why would someone from Doan come here? How would they even find us? Set shrugged. You're the master. You tell me. Xana didn't answer right away. Chewing on her lower lip, she analyzed the situation carefully, examining it from every angle. There were still too many unknowns for her to come up with a perfect plan, but she knew what had to be done. We need to go to Doan. Hold on a second, Set protested, holding up his hands. Are you sure you want to do that? I mean, even if your master's still alive, it looks to me like he's probably a prisoner. Yes, a prisoner on Doan. So what? We're going to rescue him just so you can try and kill him yourself? That would be in accordance with the rule of two, Xana thought. But there were other more practical reasons to go. My master is smart, powerful, and cunning. He's too dangerous to ignore. If they're holding him prisoner, he might find a way to escape. If he does, 
he will come after me, but it will be at a time and place of his choosing, not mine. Even if he never escapes, it's likely whoever took him will interrogate him for information. He may reveal something that exposes my existence to the Jedi or some other enemy. I'm not willing to take that chance. Plus, I want to know who attacked him and why. And if they did capture him, I want to know how they did it. What tactics did they use to bring down such a formidable opponent? And how can I make sure it never happens to me? So this is all about you tying up loose ends? She heard reluctance in his voice, the same reluctance she'd sensed when she'd first offered to take him on as her apprentice. Set had spent much of his life running from problems rather than solving them. She knew he'd rather avoid his enemies than seek a way to destroy them. In time, she would cure him of this. As his master, she would teach him the ways of the Sith. For now, however, she simply needed his help. I have to go meet with someone, she said, remembering that Chet had told her Bane had met with Argyll Ten only a few days before all this had begun. It was possible the Collector had found some interesting Sith manuscript that had prompted Bane to leave Seutric. Am I coming with you? Xana shook her head. You need to find out everything you can about Doan. If the royal family was involved, where would they take my master? And how can we find him? Sud gave a dissatisfied snort. <laughs> so now I'm a glorified librarian. Meet me back here in two days, Xana said, ignoring his complaint. By then, Ala figured out what to do next. When Xana returned to the mansion after meeting with Argyll Ten, she was mildly surprised to find Seth there waiting for her. She had half expected him not to show up. The mission she had sent him on had been important, but it had also been a test of his commitment. If he was having second thoughts about becoming her apprentice, sending him away would have given him the perfect opportunity to try to disappear. The fact that he had come back was a sign that maybe he was a suitable choice after all. She was relieved to see that things seemed to be improving with Set, because her meeting with Argyll Ten had not gone well. At first, he had refused to discuss his business with Bane, claiming discretion was the cornerstone of his business. Xana had done her best to persuade him to make an exception through non-violent means. She knew Argyll had access to rare Sith manuscripts, and she didn't want to throw away a potentially valuable resource. However, much to her dismay, he'd shown a surprising integrity when it came to protecting his client's confidentiality. In the end, she'd had to turn to less pleasant methods to make him talk. Of course, by resorting to brutal interrogation, she had revealed herself as something more than just an interested collector. And after that, she couldn't leave him alive. The risk of Argyll telling someone about her was too great. The information might make it back to the Jedi and cause them to investigate. Above all else, it was critical that the Sith remained hidden. So Xana was left with no choice but to eliminate Argyll. The real tragedy was that she never did manage to get anything more than a single name out of him. Darth Andedu. Argyll hadn't known why Bane was interested in this particular Sith Lord, and without more to go on, Xana was stuck. Welcome back, Master. Set said by way of greeting, You'll be happy to hear that I've learned everything one could possibly ever want to know about a miserable little pit of a world like Doan. Too bad I didn't send you to find out about Darth Undedu, 
she muttered, letting her frustrations boil up to the surface. Did you say Undeadu? Set asked, obviously startled. The immortal god-king of Prakith? Xana's jaw nearly hit the floor. You've heard of him? Ah, so now I have something to teach you, Set said with a grin, recovering from his initial surprise. Does that make me the master? Xana was in no mood for his jokes. Tell me what you know about Undedu. To his credit, Set picked up on her tone and took on a more serious demeanor. My last few years with the Jedi were spent serving under an Ithorian master named Oba. He explained, I've heard of him. He's on the Council of First Knowledge. Ever since their battle against the Jedi on Tython, Bane had insisted they both know the name and reputation of every master in the Order. Set raised one eyebrow. Impressive. Consider that your first lesson. Know your enemy as well as you know yourself. Noted. May I continue? Xana nodded. While under Master Oba's insufferable tutelage, much of my time was spent researching the histories of the ancient Sith. The hammer-headed old fool had this grand idea he could best serve the light by making a catalog of every known Sith holocron, then sending out his agents to round them up and bring them back to the Jedi Temple for safekeeping. In my research, I happened on several references to a man named Darth Undedu. The Jedi had worked hard to remove all mention of him from the galactic record, but as a member of the Order, I had access to the original, confiscated materials. Get to the point, Xana warned him. Of course. Undedu ruled over the world of Prakith as a god. At least he did until the hyperlanes into the deep core collapsed, effectively cutting the planet off from the rest of the galaxy. There was, however, some evidence to support the theory that Undedu created a holocron during his reign. Master Oba believed it was still on Prakith, though he felt a journey into the deep core to retrieve it was too dangerous. To be honest, I kind of agreed with him. What's so special about Undedu's holocron? Xana demanded. You nearly swallowed your tongue when I mentioned his name. If the legends are to be believed... Andedu's holocron contains the secret of eternal life. Xana cursed under her breath as all the pieces tumbled into place. Somehow, Bane must have learned of Andedu's holocron and gone to Prakith to claim it. He was trying to become immortal. That's why he had sent her off to Doan, so she wouldn't find out what he was up to. Despite everything he had taught her about the Rule of Two... He wasn't willing to accept the idea that his apprentice would one day surpass him. He actually thought that if he could find a way to stop the ravages of time and age, he could rule the Sith forever. This is a betrayal of everything you taught me, she thought. You said you were teaching me all your secrets. You said the legacy of the Sith would one day be mine to carry on. You lied to me. Do you think it's possible your master actually went to Prakith and found Andedu's holocron? Set asked, making no effort to conceal the naked hunger in his voice. Bane's journeyed into the deep core before, she admitted, remembering his trip to Tython. So, you finally decided to tell me your master's name. Xana uttered another silent swear. She had meant to keep that information to herself as long as Bane was alive. But the realization of what he had done, of how he had betrayed the Rule of Two, had her rattled. 
I still don't understand how this ties in with Doan, Set wondered aloud. That was one piece of the puzzle Xana hadn't figured out yet either, though she had a feeling it was all connected somehow. Whoever attacked him must have come for the holocron, she guessed. Whoever took Bane would have taken the artifact as well. So you think it's on Doan? It was obvious Set was more interested in claiming the holocron than in finding and dealing with Bane. But Xana had no idea who or what she would face when she went back to the mining world. And she suspected she'd need all the help she could get. You may not have been willing to risk a trip into the deep core to claim Andedu's holocron. But are you willing to travel back to Doan one more time? Set graced her with another of his extravagant bows. Lead the way, master. Chapter 16 Sarah sat alone in the small windowless office, trying to gather her courage. The only furnishings were a simple desk and the chair she currently occupied. The unadorned walls were a depressing shade of brown, their stone surface rough and unfinished. A small safe had been built into the rock wall, and a single door led out into the hall beyond. The princess wasn't naive. She understood that the room reflected the opinion most off-worlders had of Doan. They saw it as an ugly, grimy pit. She knew that those who lived in the strip mines on the planet's surface felt the same. But she had seen the planet's true beauty. Built on the plateaus atop the rock columns towering high above the choking clouds of dust and pollution, the cities of the nobility were blessed with bright blue skies nearly every day of the year. Every morning, the rising sun reflected off the burnished spires of castles built on plateaus hundreds of kilometers to the east, lighting them up like candles in the gray of the early dawn. In the evening, the sandstorms rolling across the desert seemed to dance on the horizon, alive with flickering bursts of color as the setting sun flashed off quartz chips caught up in their swirling embrace. Even after all these years, it could still take her breath away just as it had when she first came to Doan. After leaving her father's camp on Ambria, she had traveled the worlds of the Outer Rim, using what he had taught her to help the less fortunate and establishing her reputation as a skilled healer. When the Crown Prince contracted a mysterious illness, the King had hired her to tend to his son. She had instantly recognized the symptoms of Eidolian fever, a deadly but treatable infection. For three months, she nursed him slowly back to health and by the time Garen recovered, the two of them were in love. You saved his life then, but you didn't have the power to save him from the terrorists. If you were stronger, he might still be alive. Sarah shook her head in momentary confusion. The thought had been in her own voice, but it had somehow seemed alien, as if someone else was speaking inside her head. Except for herself, the office was clearly empty. The door was closed, and with the sparse furnishing, there was no place for someone to hide. She cast a wary glance at the small, four-sided pyramid sitting on the edge of the desk. It had been stashed away almost carelessly in a small duffel bag the mercenaries had brought back to her. Sarah's connection to the Force was strong enough for her to feel the power inside the artifact, trapped beneath the surface, just waiting to be released. Why didn't the Iktachi claim this for herself, she thought. She should have sensed its power, too even hidden inside the bag. Something else must have drawn her attention. 
Picking up the pyramid and holding it at arm's length, she crossed the room to the wall safe. Punching in the combination, she unlocked it and placed the pyramid inside, then closed the door, sealing it safely away. The man in the dungeon was a Sith Lord. Anything he possessed was an instrument of the dark side. Sarah wasn't interested in exploring its power. She was only interested in him. He had arrived three days ago, yet she still had not gone to speak with him. As per her instructions, he had been kept drugged and helpless the entire time. Now she knew she couldn't put it off any longer. It was time to go face her demons. Her face set in grim determination, she left the office and marched through the twisting halls of Doan's infamous Stone Prison, heading for the interrogation cells. When she had first learned about the vast dungeon complex built into the rock several kilometers below the castle, Sarah had been horrified. Historically, the nobility had used the Stone Prison to make political opponents vanish. Trapped at the heart of a rock column several kilometers high and hundreds of meters in diameter, any prisoners inside would be shielded from detection by scanners. A person could disappear forever in the underground labyrinth, spending the rest of their years in shackles, tortured for information or simple sadistic pleasure without any hope of salvation. In the event a rescue was somehow attempted, the entire complex was rigged so it could be collapsed with a series of explosions that would kill not only the prisoners, but their would-be saviors as well. The carefully engineered detonator charges would activate in a precisely timed sequence, destroying the dungeon room by room while allowing the guards time to escape. The royal manse and other buildings on the surface thousands of meters above would suffer only a few mild, though unmistakable, tremors as the entire complex below was reduced to rubble. Garin had still been alive when Sarah learned all this. He had explained that the stone prison hadn't been used in over 40 years. It was a relic of a more brutal and repressive era. In response to public pressure brought to bear by the Senate, it had been closed down. It wasn't even staffed any longer. Yet at the urging of his betrothed, he swore that once he was king, he would have the infamous dungeon permanently sealed, a gesture to symbolize the new relationships he wished to forge between the nobles and the miners. But Garin was dead now just like her father and she was the one who had hired mercenaries to capture her enemy and bury him forever inside the stone prison's cold, dark cells. She couldn't help but wonder what they would think of what she had done. What would they say if they were here right now? Sarah pushed the thought from her mind. They weren't here. Her father and her husband were both gone, forever taken from her, and she was left to deal with the Sith Lord alone. It took her nearly ten minutes to make her way from the office through the maze of passages and rooms to where the prisoner was being held. Although the corridors she traveled were illuminated by pale lights in the ceiling, many of the halls led off into darkness. Her mercenaries had only reopened one small section of the complex. The rest of it was still deserted. The man she was going to see was being held in one of the maximum security cells accessible only by a single staircase guarded by locked durasteel doors at the top and bottom. The mercenary standing guard on the other side of the door at the top unlocked it at her approach, and she quickly made her way down the steep stairs. The door at the bottom similarly opened for her, revealing a small 10 meter by 10 meter guard station. Another locked durasteel door on the far wall led into the prisoner's cell. A small viewing window had been built into the door. 
There were two tables in the room. The larger stood off to the side of the door Sarah had just entered. The smaller was on wheels, measuring only a meter by half a meter. It had been pushed against the wall beside the cell door. Six of the soldiers she had sent to apprehend the prisoner were here, along with Lucia and the Huntress. The guards were seated in chairs around the larger table, playing cards. The two women were on opposite ends of the room, distancing themselves from those at the table and each other. Lucia was leaning against the wall for support, while the Huntress sat on the stone floor, her legs crossed, hands in her lap and her eyes closed. It looked as if she might have been meditating. As Sarah entered, the guards jumped up to stand at attention, as did Lucia. The Huntress opened her eyes and looked up at the princess, but otherwise made no move. Sarah wasn't even sure what the assassin was still doing here. She had already been paid for her services. But for some reason she had chosen to stay, as if she had some vested interest in the outcome of events. The princess shook her head. She had more important things she needed to worry about than the assassin. The prisoner still sedated. She asked, Yes, ma'am, one of the guards replied. He was given another dose an hour ago. She nodded and made her way to the wheeled table in the corner. Atop the table were nearly three dozen hypodermic needles, color-coded by label according to their contents. Sarah had prepared each of the needles herself. The ones marked with a green sticker contained Senflax. They needed to keep the prisoner drugged at all times to prevent him from escaping. The others, red, black, and yellow, were filled with various compounds she would need during her interrogation. From the corner of her eye, she saw Lucia making her way from the wall toward her. Once at her side, her friend spoke in a whisper soft enough that only she would be able to hear. This isn't like you. Why are you doing this? You wouldn't understand, she replied just as quietly. Hiring this assassin was one thing, Lucia continued, her voice rising only slightly with carefully held-in-check emotion. But hiring mercenaries to secretly reopen the stone prison? What if the king finds out? He won't, Sarah assured her. This has nothing to do with Garen or Doan. The dark-skinned woman refused to let it go. Holding someone for torture and interrogation? It's not right. You know that. He's a Sith, not a soldier like you were. A Dark Lord. He doesn't deserve your pity. Or mine. Lucia shook her head and turned away. But not before Sarah clearly saw the frustration and disappointment in her face. Open the door. The princess called out to the guards. I want to speak with the prisoner. Alone. At her words, the huntress sprang to her feet, causing Lucia to step forward protectively. I want to come with you, Victochi explained. Why? Sarah demanded, suddenly suspicious. Who else could have captured him for you? She replied, avoiding the question. Have I not earned the right? If she goes, I go too, Lucia insisted, crossing her arms. Sarah could have refused them. But deep inside, she still didn't want to face the monster from her past alone. And what harm was there now if they learned her secrets? She had concealed her true identity all these years only because her father feared retribution from this man. With him as her prisoner, she had no reason left to hide. The three of us then, she conceded, grabbing the little table and wheeling it into position to bring it inside with them. 
Lock the door behind us, she instructed the guards. Lucia was worried about the princess. Ever since their visit to the Jedi Temple, she had sensed something different about her. But she had never suspected she was capable of going to such extreme lengths. She hadn't known mercenaries had been hired to reopen the stone prison. If she had, she would have tried to talk Sarah out of such a foolish and dangerous plan. The princess must have known she would object, however, and so she hadn't told Lucia what was happening until after the prisoner was safely secured in a cell. She had known about the dungeons, of course. As part of the princess's official security detail, she needed to memorize every possible entrance and exit to the castle. Up until three days ago, however, she had only ever seen blueprints. Coming face to face with the stone prison was an entirely different experience. As soon as she stepped off the long, turbo-lift ride down from the surface, she had sensed the evil of this place. The stale air had an underlying stench of death. Too many dark and unspeakable things had happened here over the centuries. Since then, Lucia had kept a careful eye on her friend. She could see something eating away at her, and she feared the unholy gloom of the stone prison would only make things worse. The princess was obsessed with the man in the dungeon, yet at the same time, she was unable to face him. Lucia knew it had something to do with her past. But when she had tried to broach the subject, the princess had refused to discuss it. Left with no other options, she'd been forced to wait for Sarah to make the next move. Now that she was about to face the prisoner for the first time, Lucia was determined to be at her side. She might not understand what her friend was going through, and she might not agree with what she was doing, but she was still going to be there in case the princess needed her. As the three women entered the cell, Lucia was surprised at how much smaller it was than the room on the other side of the door, just three meters square. The cell was dimly lit, the only illumination coming from a single sputtering light overhead. The prisoner was restrained against the far wall. His arms were extended out to either side above, his hands shackled by chains dangling from iron rings set into the ceiling. His legs were similarly splayed, his ankles cuffed to the wall behind them. Because of the drug, he was unable to stand erect. His weight sagged forward, pulling the chain supporting him tight and putting incredible strain on his wrists and shoulders. The pain in his joints would have been excruciating were it not for the numbing effects of the Senflax coursing through his system. His head was slumped down, his paralyzed muscles making it impossible for him to look up as they entered. Sarah selected a needle with a red label from the table and injected it directly to the carotid artery running up the side of his thick neck. An instant later, his head snapped up and back in reaction to the powerful stimulant. Seeing his face, Lucia gasped in surprise. The other two glanced at her momentarily, but when she shook her head, they dismissed her reaction as unimportant and returned their attention to the man in chains. It had been more than 20 years, but Lucia had recognized him instantly. Dez had been her commanding officer, her leader, her hero. Without him, none of the Gloomwalkers would have survived the war. He had saved their lives on Kashyyyk. He saved them again on Trandosha. Time after time, he had brought them through impossible situations against overwhelming odds, right up until their final mission together on Fasira. And then Lieutenant Ulabor had ordered the Enforcers 
the Sith military police to arrest him. She had never heard from Des again. Like the rest of the unit, she assumed he had been executed for disobeying orders and striking a superior officer. And even though she had believed him to be dead, she had vowed she would never forget the face of the man who had once meant everything to her. When she saw him hanging from the shackles in the cell, she hadn't been able to contain her gasp of surprise. Fortunately, neither the princess nor the huntress had realized...